Welcome to another podcast of The Apologist Bookshelf. Gary Zacharias here. I want to take a second look at a book by Ken Samples, part of Reasons to Believe. Uh, he's got a book called Christianity Cross-Examined. Christianity Cross-Examined. Is it rational, relevant, and good? See, in the old days, you had to just argue that Christianity was true or not true. That was the big debate. And then you'd talk about, well, is it relevant? You know, it's an old religion. Maybe it doesn't apply to today's society. And I think we could make a, you know easy argument for that. But now, recently, it's been, well, Christianity's bad. And now we have to fight a new fight, you know, to show that Christianity is good. So I want to look, uh, I've done his uh, book before in a previous podcast. I'd like to look at chapter 8 this time. Why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? And uh, that's a biggie. So uh, he starts off with a quote from Paul Copan. And he said, when Christians and non-Christians read about slaves or slavery in Israel, they often think along the lines of antebellum slavery with its slave trade and cruelties. So in other words, uh, you know, like the American South, this is a terrible misperception. And many, including the new atheists, have brought have bought into this misperception. And so uh, what uh, Samples does, he starts off saying that God is an appealing God in the Bible. He has a heart for the down and out. He cares for the powerless. He cares for the needy. And First Samuel says he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. And Samples, of course, recognizes how terrible slavery has been for the entirety of human civilization. And he said, but the Mosaic Law sought to protect people who lived at the very bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. And uh, he said, of course, today we see slavery as a great moral evil. And so we've got a confusion there for some people. He said, the Bible doesn't categorically condemn it. And he said, it's very confusing. And he points out critics feel that the Bible is condoning and, and almost pro- promoting slavery. For example, he quotes from Sam Harris, who says, consult the Bible and you'll discover that the creator of the universe clearly expects us to keep slaves. Another quote from Christopher Hitchens, the Bible may indeed does contain a warrant for trafficking in humans. And so he says, many secularists, once they hear that, they argue the Bible can't really be a basis for morality. It doesn't condemn the, the terrible thing of slavery itself. It says it's secularism that should be credited with improving human rights. Well, so where is Samples going to go with this? He said, the truth about the Bible's stance on slavery is far more nuanced than the atheists give it credit for. He says, it's true. The Bible nowhere calls for the formal overthrow and total abolition of slavery. So he says, uh, we need to consider things carefully. So his chapter is going to cover several different points to have a Christian response to this issue of the Bible and slavery. And the main thing, I hope if there's one thing that you take away from this podcast and think about, Hebrew indentured servitude was not the slavery that we had in America. He said today, especially in the West, uh, people picture slavery with that transatlantic slave trade and the inhumane shipboard conditions, and then coming over to the American South, a race-based chattel slavery. Now he said that is something that people think of what's going on in uh, the Hebrew times. But he said, the kind of servitude described in the Bible bears very little resemblance to that cruel slave trade from the 16th to the 19th centuries. In fact, he says it differs greatly from the slavery practiced in other parts of the ancient world, like in the Code of Hammurabi. So what is it? Well, he said, 
that word that, that we pick up as slave in Hebrew is not a negative term. It, it actually relates primarily to work or labor, the idea of a worker being subservient to another, and most often it's uh, translated as servant, sometimes servant slave or bond servant. Okay, so that's especially what you meet when you're in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And it says some of these, uh, this form of servitude, like indentured servitude, that was actually considered morally beneficial. Why? Well, you would, in, you would become indentured to somebody else. That would help you to earn a living, maybe learn a trade, maybe pay off a debt. Uh, maybe it was a criminal, and that criminal was rendering restitution. So it says in none of these cases would that servant slave be seen as just property without human rights. And it was not a life term of bondage. So the Hebrew slaves were required under the Mosaic law to be set free after six years. They, they couldn't be forced to serve their whole lives unless they willingly chose to do that out of love for their masters. And you know what I think is interesting? I'm just throwing in another comment here. Paul com calls himself a bond servant of Jesus Christ. So in a sense, he's saying, you bet I'm a slave of Jesus. This is the best place I could possibly be, not out in the world by myself. So his point, uh, back to Ken Samples, his point is that there was a big difference between the indentured servitude that Israel had and that chattel slavery that we think of in the rest of the ancient world. So it was more like an economic agreement for the Israelites, probably because of poverty, most likely. And that servant or slave would be a live-in employee and would be part of the household. And in turn, the person would get food and shelter and clothing. It was a voluntary contractual agreement just to work for a set period of time and then guaranteed eventual uh, uh, release from that. And it said after a six-year agreement, many of them chose to stay there because they got such good financial security and they liked the person. It says it's kind of hard for us to think about that today. But in those conditions, tough, you know, land uh, farming at the, on the land and small landowners, there's a tough existence there. Bad harvest, maybe you got hurt or unexpected debt, and all of a sudden you're in, um, I'm sorry, unexpected death, and you'd be thrown into debt and poverty. So debt servitude was a way out from a financial burden. So it's voluntary servant servitude in bad circumstances when you had bad economic times. That was a it was a safety net. It was actually a protection, not oppression. Isn't that interesting? These uh, laws were safety nets. So they, they also had anti-harm laws within Israel's system to keep those people safe that were servants or slaves. For example, if a, a servant got injured while they were working, they had to be released. They were released. There were anti-kidnapping laws. You couldn't go out and grab other people and bring them back and sell them as slaves. That was punishable by death if you tried to kidnap people. Uh, Deuteronomy 24-7 says this, you must purge the evil from among you uh, about kidnapping. Then they had anti-return laws in Deuteronomy 23. So what was said there was the Israelites uh, could offer safe harbor for any kind of runaway slave who would possibly be abused if he or she had to go back to the original master. Um, a point is made here that there is no other ancient Near Eastern law found that holds a master to account for the treatment of his own slaves. That's interesting. And it says uh, we have to also realize that uh, slavery was all over the ancient world. <clears throat> In fact, there's an estimate here. Paul Copan 
estimates in the first century AD, 85 to 90 percent of Rome's population was slaves. It was a huge economic role, a huge function in their society. He said, even if early Christians wanted to overturn slavery, what are they going to do? First of all, they don't have enough influence. They're living under a, an authoritative Roman rule. And it, it took thousands of years for people to be used to this kind of slavery. It was going to take some time before Christians had more influence, but it came. So he, the point is the Mosaic Law actually reformed the brutality of slavery. Uh, the slave masters in Israel didn't have absolute rights over their servant slaves. I think that's interesting. They were protected. And uh, says that was revolutionary. It was very different. No other culture protected the most vulnerable people like the Bible societies did. And so it kind of backs up to the idea that in Scripture, it's taught that God created people in his image. So you've got to be nice to these other people, slaves or whatever, because they're all made in the image of God. They're, they're not second rate at all. Um, it says they're recognized as full humans. They had dignity, they had basic rights, and they had moral worth. And there are a couple of references. I'll just give you real quickly, biblical. Deuteronomy 5, 14, and Job 31, verses 13 to 15. Uh, abusing the slaves was imprudent, immoral. That's an attack against God's nature because you're attacking the image of God there. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 to 16. So I think that's uh, valuable. Now, let's go to the New Testament. Samples ends the chapter talking about the New Testament. It does affirm the Old Testament concept of imago Dei, the image of God. And it says in Galatians and Colossians that there's neither slave nor free. In God's eyes, both slave and free are equally part of Christ's church and equally accountable to God. Slaves are granted all the rights and privileges of the people who are free in the church. And we see this in Paul's letter to Philemon. Uh, now, Philemon is a friend of Paul. And uh, he has, he's a slave owner, and his slave, Onesimus, ran away. And by interacting with Paul, Onesimus has become a Christian. And so Paul sends Onesimus back with a letter telling Philemon, you need to accept him. He's not just a slave. He's a dear brother in Christ. So slaves and masters were considered brothers in the Lord. They're encouraged to respect one another. We see that in 1 Timothy 6. They were to relate to each other with brotherly affection. That's Romans 12 and 2 Peter 1. Both slaves and free people had one master. That was Jesus Christ. Paul references over and over again that all believers are slaves to the Lord, and all believers are also free in the same Lord. That's kind of an interesting combination, isn't it? So he said that was revolutionary and it was countercultural. Uh, at that time, Christians who were enslaved under Roman rule lived as brothers and sisters with their masters in the Christian church. So what was happening is Christianity is dismantling slavery, but it's happening from the bottom up. We're not getting the leaders of the society doing it, but we're getting the individuals. Then uh, toward the end here of the chapter, uh, Samples talks about why did the apostolic authors not categorically condemn slavery? because they probably saw the preaching of the gospel and redemption of lost souls ahead of that reform, societal reform. But that teaching about humankind and all of us having the image of God and the relationship to God through Christ, that's a spiritual force that's going to change. Christianity is affirming the value of all people in God's eyes. 
and that eventually brought the end to illegal slavery. Many in the 18th and 19th century abolitionist movements, both in England and America, they were Protestant evangelical Christians. People like William Wilberforce, you probably, I hope, you had the chance to see uh, his story in the movie Amazing Grace. Writers Hannah Moore and William Lloyd Garrison, orators Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, the Underground Railroad conductor Harriet Tubman, and many that were within the Quaker denomination, these, per, these people were motivated by the understanding that you put slavery, it doesn't, it's not consistent with the historic Christian view of who we are and how we get saved. Even in the ancient world, the apostles encouraged Christians who were enslaved to seek their freedom. That's 1 Corinthians 7. And there are two passages where Paul and John condemned slave trading, 1 Timothy 1.10, Revelation 18.13. And uh, so I think that's interesting. He said, had the apostles called for an overthrow of slavery, there could have been huge problems. They could have seen the early Christian movement uh, as against good order because a slave revolt would have been crushed by the Romans and then tremendous loss of life and a huge setback for the early Christian church. So he says the Bible, the, the Bible endorses slavery. And that's not a good argument. That's faulty logic. And uh, it says the Bible doesn't formally condemn it, but it doesn't ignore it. It doesn't condone slavery. It's the unique ethical message in the Bible that talks about human dignity and redemption. There's the spiritual and moral force that's going to eventually come and wipe out slavery. So uh, he quotes at the end of the chapter here from Rodney Stark, a historian. By the way, I love just about everything Rodney Stark has put out. Take a look at his work sometime. S-T-A-R-K, Rodney Stark. Here's what he says about slavery. Just as science arose only once, so too did effective moral opposition to slavery. Christian theology was essential to both. It is to recognize that of all the world's religions, including the three great monotheisms, only in Christianity did the idea develop that slavery was sinful and must be abolished. Finally, the abolition of New World slavery was initiated and achieved by, are you ready for this, Christian activists. So that's what Rodney Stark has to say. So I hope that uh, kind of clears up the idea of uh, slavery and Christianity. Again, the book is Christianity Cross-Examined. Excellent book. Uh, if you have a chance, take a look at it. And uh, thanks for listening.